Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics. I am Andrea Bernardi, your host of the channel from Oxford Books University in the UK. And today I'm here to present a great new book, and I'm here with the author, Martin Konings. The book is titled Capital and Time, and it has just been published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. Hello, Martin. Uh, please, can you introduce yourself and tell us something about your current affiliation and your background? Yeah, um, thanks for the invitation. Um, I am currently um, uh, currently I teach in the Department of Political Economy uh, at the University of, University of Sydney, where I'm an associate professor. Um, in terms of my background, um, I am from Holland. I grew up in Holland. I um, did my undergraduate studies in political economy at the University of Amsterdam. Um, at the time, they had like quite a sort of large group of um, radical political economists there who, you know, were interested in various um, aspects of, of, of Marxism and Gramscianism. Um, and um, for, after finishing my undergraduate studies in Amsterdam in um, 1999, I uh, went to uh, York University in, in Canada, in Toronto. And that was quite a sort of a conscious choice because I was very interested in sort of Marxist political economy at the time. And that was really one of the preeminent departments um, in the world. And, and they had a great number of people like Leo Panich who would end up, um, who ended up supervising my thesis. At the same time, you had Ellen Meeksons Wood and um, a whole bunch of other people who are, you know, we've learned a lot from. Um, and the um, yeah the North American sort of PhD model was very formative um, in the sense that like first you do two years of coursework and only then do you start to write your dissertation. That um, helped me sort of you know sort of think about a lot of things quite deeply. And the dissertation ended up being about sort of the historical uh, sources and institutional foundations of the American financial system. And the idea was really like, you know, everybody has been predicting that the system would collapse, uh, for decades now, but you know, what is it in the nature of the system that, you know, it, it, it runs into crisis, but it doesn't quite collapse. What is that? Um, I was writing this like in 2005, 2006, and then, you know, it was kind of complete, the thesis was complete um, by the time the, um, the financial crisis of 2007, 2008 hit. And so in some sense, that was good timing um, in the sense that, you know, your research gets a certain degree of topicality. Um, and I then um, in 2000, sorry. Yeah? In particular, you ended the book uh, while being visiting at New York University. So you were at the center of where the Occupy movement and the, and the protest to the financial crisis uh, was based. 
Oh, yeah. Well, this was much later, actually. This was uh, so after I finished my PhD thesis, I went to Holland for two years um, to work on a postdoc with Ewald Engelen, who uh, is a financial geographer at the, at the university there. And after I'd done that, then I moved to the University of Sydney uh, in 2009, um, where I produced the, a book out of the thesis. So the book out of the thesis was The Development of American Finance. That was published by Cambridge in 2011. And then I did another book on the emotional logic of capitalism. Um, and both these books sort of made the same point that, you know, like... Critics of finance are very interested in uh, the contradictions of the system and sort of, you know, how it's all the reasons why it can't function and its weak points. And both of those books were really trying to figure out, like, well, what are the what is the glue glue of capitalism? What what what's, uh, allows it to hang together and sort of overcome all these challenges, even you know, this, despite the fact that it is so obviously problematic in so many, so many ways. And so once I was done with those books, then I um, embarked on, you know, writing the book that we're now talking about. So, and that, and I wrote that book mostly at uh, New York University. Yes, that's right. So I, I was there in 2004, 2015, 2016. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. So the crisis was over, in particular in the United States, but also the Occupy movement was over. Uh, so uh, if I may put a very, very brief summary, the book is about the intrinsic speculative nature of capitalism. Speculation is not just a negative spillover, something that you might want to control as much as possible. Uh, so this was very, very topical. And um, what is your opinion about uh, the unsuccessful end of the of the movements that uh, spread all over the world uh, since the beginning of the crisis of 2007-2008. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's hard to, um, it's, it's a pretty complex thing, of course. Like, I realized that a lot of those movements aren't as active as they were at some point, and that some of them have even died out. Uh, but it, it does seem to me that, you know, Occupy Wall Street, um, has had fairly, you know, significant, it has, you know, very significant sort of consequences or influence on how we think about things like finance and banks and money. Um, so, you know, like I can see how people would look at sort of just the organizational structures now and be like, well, that's kind of died down. But I'm not so sure. I think it did a lot to sort of get into people's psyches and to really put on the agenda you know, like it to kind of provoke a deeper engagement with um, questions that until then had been dealt with in a very technocratic way. Like nowadays, everybody can talk about, everybody knows how to talk about certain things like, you know, quantitative easing, for instance, in ways that would have been quite unimaginable Um before the crisis, where you just kind of had this sort of really depoliticized uh, technocratic policymaking. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's not the kind of change that perhaps has like visible impact, but it certainly has sort of very lasting consequences, I think. Well, and also, page... like, you know, the. the... Sorry, Gun? Yeah. 
Oh, no, no. Well, I wanted to quote something you wrote at page two, which is, uh, this has turned out to be a serious misreading of the crisis. Instead of a new deal, of a new new deal, we got a neoliberalism recharged. Mm-hmm. So the the, the yeah. critic uh, didn't didn't work because it was based on wrong uh, assumptions. Wrong uh, people were criticizing the wrong uh, stuff. Or oh, there, there are mechanisms of consent within financial co- uh, capitalism that uh, uh, prevent us to go uh, uh, towards a new paradigm. Well, I mean, I don't think you know. I'm certainly I, I'm under no illusion that you know if people sort of picked up my critique, that's like politically that would be a whole different kind of ball game. Um, and in fact, I would say that what always impressed me about Occupy Wall Street was its sort of creative approach to organizing, but also its sort of creative intellectual contributions and its willingness to sort of think about. Push, push beyond that critique, actually, there, that, um, that I take the task in my book. There's even this um, little book published years ago by Duke University Press. It's called Speculate This. And I believe quite a few uh, people from the Occupy Wall Street movement were sort of involved in producing that. And that's a very creative reflection on, you know, on the nature of speculation that goes well beyond uh, the kind of, you know, theories that, that, that I criticize. And yeah, so I wouldn't say it's just a matter of like, well, they had the wrong critique. Um, they, I think, you know, in the end, they were just, there were just more powerful forces out there. You know, there's the, the, the resurgence of right-wing populism, you know, the Tea Party phenomenon, which of course had access to far greater resources, financial media, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of the, radicalization of mainstream conservatism, you know, the, the democratic establishment that like, you know, tries to sort of keep the lid on these kinds of things. And yeah, I do think it's very hard to overcome these things, even if you did have the right sort of critique. And also the, um, yeah, I do feel that, you know, like it, even, even though the movement isn't, you know, perhaps as much there anymore as it used to, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, there is, there is also a certain, you know, alongside sort of the right-wing um, radicalization, there is a left-wing radicalization happening. And, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that people like, you know, Bernie Sanders um, or, or Corbyn in the UK, you know, could have been so successful in transforming the Democratic Party from, from within if it hadn't been for sort of the, uh, the, the, the energies that Occupy Wall Street had uh, had brought to that process. Uh, you know, certainly it's done a lot to sort of radicalize the left from within to some extent. And then there again, like, you know, you, you still have this, um, all of this is still accompanied by much more profound understanding of, you know, technical financial issues, um, than than we were used to, you know. Now you have all these debates about, you know, the unaffordability of house prices in in large cities. Um, you know, that is it's not as if they were entirely absent before, but certainly the intensity with which people are um, getting these issues and sort of, you know, paying attention to them that that is quite new, I think, and you know, politically very significant. 
This is true. I certainly agree. You're right. Perhaps on the financial side, the financial regulation, for example, we are even taking step uh, backwards uh, on that. And in part, we we forgot the lesson. But yes, you're right. The the movement is not over with respect to other topics. Mm, uh, you mentioned your Marxist education and Gramsci. Um, uh, for example, what what have you used of Marx, and what uh, you have? Um, you have in what in which way you've gone even ahead or you you used a different notion of financialization and speculation than Marx one for example mm-hmm. um yeah well I mean, that is that really is a quite a hard question um because yeah like I, I I do have some sort of Marxist credential but at the same time I'm always sort of under suspicion from you know more uh Proper Marxist, I guess that, like you know, I've, um, you know, that, that that's actually not not what I do, uh, and I understand that too. Actually, that's totally fine, and I don't think there's you know that much writing on it. But um, yeah, like to a certain extent, I I go along with I think um, sort of the core tenets of a of a Marxist analysis, the way Marx set it out, and like. Capital Volume One, for instance, um, where he really sort of, um, you know, proposes a new way of approaching political economy. Um, but then other parts, I'm just less, you know, less less interested in. I guess, like if you, you know, for instance, like Volumes Two and Three of Capital, you know, they're much more concerned with technical details and and you know and to a certain extent you see their kind of marks getting drawn back into the language and the concerns of you know the political economy of his time quite understandably but it does mean that you know a lot of the theoretical thrust gets kind of blunted which is of course also why many people like you know like tony negri are so interested in the Grundrisse, you know like because um in some ways it's a much clearer theoretical statement of the philosophical dimensions of, of that sort of distinctly Marx, Marxist approach. Um, and so, yeah, you know, like, well, I'm sure that there would be lots of interesting stuff in volume two and three. Um, I'm also, it's just not, and, and, you know, people are debating this at length. I'm less interested in those debates, I think, because it is hard to avoid a certain reductive approach to finance, like one that sees it as sort of speculative, unproductive. Um, That is sort of the legacy of that 19th century political economy, which, you know, like has a strong labor theory of value often. Um, So I keep, you know, I've kept a certain distance from these sort of contemporary value theory debates. and when it comes to sort of, you know, working out the more technical detail of, let's say, it's sort of those, the basic conception of like, you know, speculation and the kind of responses it provokes that I think is sort of in tune with Marx's understanding. But when it comes to working out the details, uh, I found Minsky actually much more helpful, not the Minsky that has become um, famous through sort of the post-Keynesian um reading of him, but more, more Minsky that is, um, um, so yeah, not the Minsky that is sort of 
also a critic of speculation as, as, as an unproductive practice, but more the Minsky that has been highlighted by people like Perry Meerling, for instance, where, where it's much more about, um, you know, the, 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 the absolute necessity in a capitalist society to take positions on the future and the, and, and the, the complex tapestry of debt and payment constraints that emerges um, as a result of that. Uh, and I found that a much more, um, much more productive way to think about contemporary capitalism than, for instance, going through the sort of, you know, the reproduction schemas and the you know, questions of circulation and those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I think, you know, like to, to that extent, I've, I've tried to sort of, you know, mark size Minsky a little bit. <laughs> Well, if I can quote you again, on page three, you say that the orthodox of the past uh, can become uh, uh, today's heterodoxy. Are you thinking about something in particular? And so what what is wrong in uh, the um, academic uh, speculation that makes it difficult uh, to go to the to the critique of capitalism that you, you think is necessary? Um. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the quote, like, basically what I'm saying there is that um, the, the critique of speculation um, is very old. You know, it started as the sort of the critique of crematistics in antiquity, and then that was kind of formulated as the sort of, you know, the idolatrous, the critique of the idolatrous worship of money in, in, in the Christianity. Um, and you know, basically I'm saying that, like, you know, this is not proof as such that there's anything wrong with that theory, but certainly the fact that that, that kind of orthodoxy, that the orthodox rejection of money uh, that, you know, was, that, that was in place in the past, that that has now become sort of the heterodox critique of the system. Um, yeah, like it, it's, it's an uncomfortable reflection. It should be an uncomfortable reflection on the nature of that critique, you know, they've taken some some sort of mainstream fifteenth um, century Christianity and and repurposed it for criticizing um, the role of finance in contemporary society. Um, you know, like yeah, that's not proof that it's wrong, but intuitively and you know, on every level, I feel that we can probably do better than going back. Uh, you discussed the issue of neutrality of the state uh, and neutrality of the regulators, and in particular with respect to um, the central banking. So in which way uh, public institutions are reinforcing or contributing uh, to the speculative nature of capitalism? Um, massively, I would say, and, and I think that is really one of the key shifts that neoliberalism has um, ushered in, in a way. Um, how to deal with banks and the risk they take uh, has always been a source of worry or a source of anxiety for regulators. Um, all those 19th century um, British uh, central banking debates revolve around like how can you protect the system without creating all kinds of new uh, moral hazard. That's what, you know, the Badgett doctrine was kind of an, an answer to that. Um, 
it was kind of a sort of a first answer to that, which fit with the realities of British capitalism to a certain extent, but much less so, I think, with the American context, which was always much more sort of speculative in in, in nature. Um, and then what you see during, let's say, during the period between the New Deal and the 1970s is that regulators are facing a system that they that is speculative again, that they can't quite control. And every time they do try to control it, you know, like you get these sort of shadow banking dynamics where, you know, like it just goes somewhere else. Every time they do build out an institution, like, you know, it just has these, it's, it gets the sort of perverse um, effects. And the shift towards neoliberalism really involves um, policymakers becoming much more comfortable with the idea of encouraging speculation because suddenly they think of moral hazard no longer simply as, you know, a problem, but also as something that is quite productive, that, you know, stimulates cert taking certain risk positions, that um, keeps the uh, system manageable in certain ways. And you, you kind of see that in the, you know, the, the discourse, the way the discourses uh, shift from, you know, like public, um, from like crisis, from concerns about um, crisis prevention to crisis containment. So, you know, they, they let go of this idea that the, the crisis is something you can prevent. Um, and they're much more happy to... Um, um, to accommodate and even sort of stimulate uh, a certain degree of speculative activity. Um, and that is, of course, accompanied also by the fact that they've learned that it's fine to have a bailout here and there. It's not going to do something horrible. It's just a bailout. Yes, it doesn't perverse moral hazard implications, um, but it's not the end of the world. So... After 1980, you really sort of see that, and I think, you know, the Volcker shock really played a key role here because, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing surprising about the immediate effects of the Volcker shock. It was just like, yeah, the whole system sort of, you know, burst out of the institutional parameters of the, of the post-New Deal framework. Um, and it was also clear that, um, you know, there would be, you know, failures of large financial institutions. And so, you know, the whole point, objectively speaking, or whatever uh, Volcker thought he was doing, objectively speaking, was to sort of um, create a situation where risk could be social, yeah, risk could be socialized in more selective ways. Because that was the problem in the 1970s that like, you know, they couldn't um, there was just kind of this general inflationary trend because, you know, like they could only prop up the system as a whole. And now, you know, now the, that kind of support became much more selective, uh, just targeted, targeted at, you know, large corporations, that, that, uh, large banks that would, were about to go under. This also brings me back to an issue which is very prominent in the title of the book, which is Capital in Time, and also is in Chapter 6, which is Time, Investment and Decision. So what is the, you often have an historical perspective, and in particular, what is the, the 
meaning the role of time in capitalism and in speculative capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so let me, the book criticizes the idea of speculation as sort of a, a deviation from a more solid state of affairs, you know, basically says that like any type of valuation is speculative because it's oriented towards the future and you have no guarantees about what you're going to get. Um, so in that sense, um, it's really brings time into the heart of what value and capital are about. Now to sort of unpack it a little bit more, um, it's quite common for critical social scientists to criticize orthodox economics for not for, for neglecting time. Um, you know, they feel that mainstream analysis is too static, not sufficiently concerned with change, and then bringing time in in the way that orthodox uh, heterodox critics do becomes a way to make the the analysis more dynamic more capable of like dealing with change um but you know i i always think that is a limited move you know quite often that means that social science becomes a combination of you know static and dynamic analysis so we start out with trying to analyze the world out there that is assumed to exist on its own, independent of time. And then we kind of layer time on top of that as a kind of source of change and variation. So you end up with these essentialist or determinist approaches that really deny their essentialist or determinist. You know, there are quite a few Marxist approaches um, along those lines. Um, now, there, there are other authors, uh, other Marxist authors, like, you know, like David Harvey, for instance, um, who, who, you know, who plays much greater emphasis on sort of the productive character of time. That is not just a superficial process, but, you know, at the heart of how capital works. Capital isn't just something that exists in time, but it is time. Um, it's dynamic. It's restless. It doesn't just exist in history, but it makes history, shapes the future. Um, now the key, and I agree with that taken by itself, um, but it can be quite difficult to make that insight consequential, to you know really work it out in ways that show the distinctiveness of a temporal or a temporalizing approach. And what I mean by that is um, that is quite common for such approaches to fall back in a combination of you know essentialist and dynamic analysis, like, you know, which sort of resembles that base superstructure model. And so, for instance, like in Harvey's case, you know, that's apparent in um, in his take on finance, which he sees as, you know, fictitious, it's irrational, it's a fake presentation of value, um, speculative and sort of pejorative sense of the word. Um, and this is sort of allied to, you know, fairly... Um, the essentialist labor theory of value. And the growth of credit and finance are always seen as you know, manifesting contradictions in the material base of capitalist production. So speculation is always a pathology. And you can see this, um, so, so what you get in that way is you know, it's a fairly essentialist understanding of capitalism. It turns out to be quite difficult to specify how capital doesn't just exist in time, but how it 
is time. Um, and you see that in other um, authors too, for instance, like, you know, for um, the, the, the kind of cyclical theory of history, which thinks in like waves of financialization that, that, that manifest the contradictions of the material base, like for instance, like Giovanni Arrighi, his history of, of mm -hmm. capitalism is written along those lines. Um, so the shift that I'm trying to make in my book is to say like, okay, you know, like this is clearly difficult. It's clearly difficult to think along those lines. So we really need to just think of capital as at its core speculative, um, as, you know, value, the value claims of, um, of capital, they're forward-looking. They are provocations. They need to do something. They need to, you know, like uh, set in motion the production of the value that they that they represent. Um, so it becomes an analysis that is really set in time, with sort of time as an active force, rather than something that is kind of layered on top of an otherwise you know, essentialist analysis to introduce some change and some dynamism. Very interesting, very complex. Uh, like your, well, like the entire book, you managed to deal with very complex uh, topics, but uh, in, a, in a way which is approachable by everybody. Uh, maybe now I would like to move uh, to a question. I don't know if it is fair to ask, but do you think there are policy implications of your research? So if you had, if you were to be named uh, as head of, I don't know, a central bank or a government, would it be possible to deploy your ideas in, in a practical way? In a way, yes. In a way, yeah. Um, okay, let me put it this way. Like, I'm not sure there are too many direct policy implications. You know, and actually I'm always quite skeptical of strong claims about, you know, possibility for direct policy relevance. Uh, policymakers, I think, occupy a certain position in society at large. You know, and if you make it your job to speak to their concerns very directly and very closely, you know, you inevitably get caught in a trade-off between access and making a difference. You know, you only get pe these people to listen if you don't challenge their pre-existing ideas and values and, you know, in, in fundamental ways and ways that really sort of require them, require them to sort of think think differently. Um, and by the same logic, like, you know, I'm not sure that we look, we should be looking to policymakers for, to change things, you know, like the, um, the people who make it to those positions have gone through a process of socialization and selection you know, and their job is to make the system, is to keep the system running, not to challenge it. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's just like, um, if you're looking for sources of change, I, I am much more inclined to think about how my work could feed into some of those currents we thought, we spoke about earlier, the kind of aftermath of Occupy Wall Street and uh, the way and sort of, you know, a, a new kind of progressive liberalism is sort of forming around uh, Bernie Sanders and how that is sort of, you know, pushing the um, democratic mainstream a little bit more to the left. Um, but yeah, like, so, so, so that would be sort of my intuitive approach. But if you ask me, like, you know, if somehow I, you know, tomorrow I was, I was um, picked as the next... Um, 
president of whatever central bank. Yeah, you know, like I could think of a um, a quantitative easing that is works much more for regular people than for banks. Like, you know, that is something um, that people ask for. It's actually like um, it's quite a popular theme right now uh, and it's a very obvious thing to um, to demand in a way that yeah people lost their houses but uh, people who lost their houses got no protection whatsoever but the bank di- banks did like the, the, the unfairness there is so so obvious uh, anyone can sort of relate to it so quantitative easing for the people I think is you know would be something I'd be very happy implementing I also I just don't have any illusions that you know that this wouldn't be figured out beforehand or that I wouldn't be immediately booted out if, if I did that. So, um, so yeah, I think you, you get my, like, I'm, you know, I'm interested in sort of exploring those ideas, but also somewhat skeptical about how, um, directly impactful these ideas can be. Of course, by the way, the subtitle of your book is for a new critique of neoliberalism. Uh, and given that we discussed about institutions from Europe, I would like to ask you if you see the building of the European institutions, in particular those in charge of the market, uh, money, and regulation, do you think that they are the result of uh, uh, the mainstream neoliberal um, ideology? or you have a more positive view of the role of the European integration, process of integration? So, so, so what do you mean by mainstream ideology? Well, for example, the British left, uh, are about to leave the European uh, uh, Union, uh, criticizing, uh, for example, some aspects of the regulation, but they were those that uh, contributed the most to shape it. For example, the, the idea of uh, market competition uh, applied everywhere, for example, to local authorities, uh, utilities, and public services. So uh, the, some critique from the left of the European Union is that, uh, after all, the, those institutions have been shaped by neoliberalism, and so they have to be criticized because they are the result of, of this dominant uh, ideology. Uh, others have a more sympathetic view of the European Union. I don't know from uh, uh, Australia, or from North America, uh, what is the opinion of the European Union project from uh, a critical yeah, so mean. yeah, no, I see what you mean now. Uh, like, um, like any other, like anything else, like the sort of the grand project of European unification, I'm sure it was a very complex mixture of good intentions and people wanting to con- get control over certain parts of the institutions they were building. Um, and at a certain level, I can still certainly, you know, when I was growing up in Holland, like, you know, 15 years old or whatever, or perhaps a little later when you're a bit more politically conscious, but it would have been very, very weird for somebody to say that they were against the European Union. That would have been really like, oh, what, what kind of... <laughs> you know what's wrong with you like what are you like a like a staunch nationalist I love, of course it's like basic internationalism so and i can still appreciate that in a way that there is that aspect to it um but even if perhaps it wasn't entirely a new liberal project to begin with and actually had some pretty noble intentions yeah certainly over the past 
decade or a decade or two or even longer, you know, it has become more and more geared to a fairly narrow set of interests that um, that can be pretty ruthless. Um, you know, like the like it's also fairly well documented that there are sort of lots of you know neoliberal ideas and think tanks and whatnot behind the sort of the the building of the European Union. Um, but certainly, yeah, like the, the the way in which the European Union has evolved over the past decade, um, seizing on the crisis essentially to impose a draconian austerity regime um, uh, that, that has that has had horrible consequences for um, you know some of its economically weakest members. Um, yeah, like that's hasn't left me with any sympathy for the institution so that like you know there are always these sort of defenders who will never give up defending like like Jurgen Habermas will you know like will never lose faith in the European Union but yeah I'm not I'm not there anymore like I think it's um, you know it needs to be challenged Um, not not in the name of you know the nation state or anything like that but just as a um, as an agent of um, capitalism, as an agent of dramatically growing inequality um, and lots of other uh, unsavory things. Do you have instead, uh, are you more optimistic about instead China and the possibility that China brings a, a contribution to a shift in the paradigm? Or perhaps not, perhaps China is already very much embedded in, in a traditional financial capitalism. Um, I'm certainly not, not optimistic about it, but I, but I can, you know, I, like shifts in global power do produce unexpected things. So that way that, you know, it's not to, uh, rule out that things might look up later, but that has nothing to do with sort of, you know, what China is sort of bringing to the table, um, as things stand in a way, but, um, and I also think that the, I mean, like, oh, the, the, okay, so the, this is about geopolitics in part, because uh, I do remember that when I, in 2007, I moved from Toronto to Holland, and I still remember being so um, bemused that um, there was this atmosphere in Holland amongst academics and amongst the wider public that, like, was, there was a lot of schadenfreude, like, people looking across uh you know across to america and see and saying things like oh that could never hear those that's just those crazy americans with the crazy levels of debt they're risk takers they just are careless you know this will never happen here and i was like i don't think this is a very good analysis and of course you know within a year the whole thing blew over and you know the euro crisis uh, became at least as um you know uh serious as, as the american crisis has ever been um so, well, which is just to say that, like, yeah, those sort of dreams that some people have that, Europe, like, a, a social democratic Europe will become like a an, an alternative to the the more you know brutal racism of uh, of the Amer of, of America. I, I don't believe that at all. I think what you know, over time, over a much longer period of time, I do think there will be some sort of rebalancing of geograph um, geopolitical power relations, but with the rise of China. Um, but what that will look like is, you know, it's just so 
hard to speculate on. I, I hope there will be some, you know, like perhaps it will open up some things, but yeah, I'm not, I don't see, you know, very particular reasons to be super optimistic. Thank you very much. You've been very patient with my questions and it was a, a very interesting conversation. So congratulations for the oh, book. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. I, I advise everybody to buy it because it deals with a very complex topic, but it is approachable by everybody in the way it has been written. So this is the capital and time for a new critique of neoliberal reason by Martin Konings. And this was published in 2018 by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much. Thank you.